If you have a copy of God's Word, I encourage you to turn this morning to Acts chapter 13. The book of Acts in the New Testament, chapter 13. Another reminder, if you omitted to pick up a calendar for 2022, those calendars are still available, one per family to begin with, and then we will distribute the rest as outreach material, so make sure to pick it up before you leave if you haven't already. Acts chapter 13, you're going to need your Bibles today, so make sure to keep them in hand and Keep them ready to turn to passages that we will be turning to. I want to begin reading at verse 17. Paul is preaching, and in his sermon he makes reference to David, and David is who we will look at today with the Lord's help in our series, Lives Well Lived. Acts chapter 13, verse 17. Let's hear the word of the Lord. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an high arm brought he them out of it. And about the time of forty years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, He divided their land to them by lot. And after that, he gave unto them judges about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they desired a king. And God gave unto them Saul, the son of Sis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, To him also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. Then moved on to verse 34. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David, Wherefore, he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep, and was laid unto his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. Amen. We'll end our reading there at verse 37. Let's pray with the word of God open before us and our desire to hear from the Lord this morning, let's ask the Lord to minister to us. Lord, we need the help of your Spirit. We always need the help of your Spirit. Jesus said without Him we could do nothing. So we pray today for that help that makes all the difference when we live and obey and especially when we come to the Word, for these things are spiritually discerned. So I pray, Lord, take the reins of the rest of this meeting. May we meet with our God. May the Word be fitting and in season for everyone, regardless of their need. So forgive our sins and 
Grant us much of your presence, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we are going through an overview of certain lives within the Scriptures, we have come this morning to the life of David. Leading up to this, we've looked at the period called the Judges. We've read of it. It's a period of just over four centuries. We looked at Gideon. We looked at Samson. We looked even at Hannah last week, the woman who prayed for a child and sought to see how she impacted her generation. But we come now to one that we're told very specifically that he, at the end of our reading, verse 36, a man that we're told served his own generation before before he passed into eternity. This is a significant character. How you preach him in one sermon is perhaps even more difficult than some of the others we've already dealt with, but we will try as, as we have been. A man after God's own heart. A man amidst all of his gifting still reminded Israel that he could in no wise save them or deliver them. Of course, the background to his arrival is, is to be understood by us all. You wonder, you ask the question, why did they go from judges to kings? Why did that happen? And the, and the reason is simple. The people wanted to be like the other nations. And Samuel lived to see that time whenever essentially the people were rejecting God. They would not have God to reign over them purely through the judges. They wanted their own particular king. And the first king, of course, was Saul. We read of him here, the one that was rejected by God. He, he begins well. His outwardly appearance is stately and impressive. You look at Saul and you think, yep, yep, that's, that's the kind of person that you would want to be king over the land. He has all the gifting, all the appearance. He has a certain a kind of air about him, a manner to his character that exhibits stateliness. And in his early years, he has the coinciding humility as well, and things, things are going good for him until he begins to think himself wiser than God. The sad scene that you have in 1 Samuel 13, and really it's not that far into his reign, he is about to engage in battle against the Philistines and is waiting on the arrival of Samuel to come, and Samuel would offer sacrifices and, and, and lead in the worship of God before they would go out to battle. But, but Saul is impatient. Samuel hasn't arrived. And Saul decides, let's, let's us just go ahead and offer the burnt offering ourselves. And we're told in 1 Samuel 13, verse 13 and following, Samuel said to Saul, Thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast not kept the commandment of the Lord thy God, which he commanded thee, for now would the Lord have established thy kingdom upon Israel forever, but now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart, and the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. This is the sad beginnings of the demise of Saul. It doesn't happen instantaneously. In fact, it takes years really for, for the whole process of going from Saul to David, but the entire time Saul is going further and further down in his spiritual experience and walk with God. 
It is this passage, of course, that Paul refers to in Acts 13, verse 22, when he speaks of David as the one after God's own heart. God could see in David something unique, something distinct, something that truly was stately. And it was not by outward appearance, far from it, as we shall see. There are many ways in which David has so much to offer us in in pointing us not just to himself and to what he achieved, but ultimately to Christ. We were singing singing this morning of that fact. When we think of David, we are not to miss out on considering Christ. Think of just a number of ways in which David points to Christ. First, we might say David is the anointed king who all others will be compared to just like Christ. And so throughout the history of Israel, after the kings, they, they get compared to David, don't they? He was like his father David, or he was not like his father David. He becomes the the one they're compared to. Of course, Christ is the ultimate one that all are compared to. David is the shepherd king who tends to his father's sheep just like Christ. This wonderful aspect of our Lord Jesus, who is the shepherd of his sheep, is the one who tenderly cares for them. There's tremendous truth that he takes, not just prophetically in what Ezekiel deals with, but in our Lord Jesus Christ speaking to us in John 9 and the excommunication of the blind man and Christ coming in, showing himself in chapter 10 to be that good shepherd of the sheep, especially of those that are mistreated. He comes and tends to the flock. David is also the warrior king who leads in all of Israel's battles, just like Christ. He is the one that gives confidence to the people that if David is leading the way, if David is the one that is the captain of our armies, then we need not worry. Victory might already be given to us if David is leading the way. And of course, while that was not always the case, certainly that is fulfilled perfectly by Christ. He is also the persecuted king. He suffers greatly at the hands of wicked leaders, just like Christ suffered so much at the hands of others who thought themselves to be king and to rule. He's also the musical king, isn't he? Who gives to Israel her songs of praise, just like Christ. Oh, how Christ leads his people as a people who will sing praises to him. How he gives to them the new song, even praise unto your God. David, as he comes, as, as, as he arrives on the scene, he, he develops this, this, what we call the Psalter, this, this hymnal of praise to God, leading the people that they are to be a people who worship in song. And Christ leads that way even more perfectly. We might finally say David is the architectural king whose goal is to build a permanent temple. And Christ is the one who builds that temple, a temple not made with hands, a temple of his people, each of them brought onto himself to be lively stones, each in their place in the temple of God. These are just some of the ways. David reminds us of Christ, points to Christ, and this is a study in and of itself, but, but our, 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 our series is Lives Well Lived. And we're wanting to draw from these individuals that we look at in such a way that they provoke us to love and to good works that we learn of what the grace of God can accomplish in a sinner and how the Lord is pleased to use people, ordinary people, just like you and me. 
and that we might recalibrate our own lives so that we live for His glory in the way that we should. So this morning, David, he who was after God's own heart, he who was after God's own heart, and we want to think of a few simple things, but you will need your Bible open. You'll need to follow with us. First of all, his selection. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel 15. You'll want to follow in the Word of God as we read through these passages and get an overview of David's life and the testimony of Scripture concerning him. 1 Samuel 15. This is some background here that is in addition to what we've already read. Remember 1 Samuel 13 is where we first see Saul's great demise and his disobedience that Samuel calls out. Samuel now has to call him out again. Because as he came against Amalek, he failed again to do what God had called him to do. And so in verse 24 of 1 Samuel 15, we read, Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore I pray thee, pardon my sin, and turn again with me, that I may worship the Lord. Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned about to go away, he laid hold upon the skirt of his mantle, and it rent. And Samuel said unto him, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. So this is some further background as we, we, we progress and we're just about to be introduced to David. But I want you to see here that again, Saul is guilty of disobeying. He, he portrays a certain aspect of, of desiring forgiveness, desiring to be reconciled, but only once he realizes what it is that he's losing. Remorse and repentance are not the same thing, men and women. You can be sad because you're caught, but not sense the gravity of what you've done. And so it was for Saul. And so we're told, Samuel prophesies that, that the Lord, and he, he doesn't know who it is at this stage. He, he, he doesn't know, but he is, he is prophetically speaking to Saul that God has given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. He is better. In all the ways that matter. So we come to chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, saying, I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? For thine horn with oil and go, I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hear it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take an heifer with thee, and say, I am come to sacrifice to the Lord. And call Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show thee what thou shalt do. Thou shalt anoint unto me him whom I name unto thee. Him whom I name. I am naming him. It's one that the Lord has in mind. And of course, no one knows about it. Samuel doesn't know. Jesse doesn't know. Saul has no idea. And David himself has no clue about any of this. God is working. He is working behind the scenes. He is working to fulfill his own will through David. And of course, you read through the following verses. The sons of Jesse come. You look at verse 6. It came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab and said, this is Samuel now, he looks at Eliab, the eldest son, and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. <laughs> He's just like Saul. He has all the appearance, all the grandeur, certain stateliness, some other aspects and attributes that, 
that communicated kingliness. Verse 7, But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord saith not as man saith, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. And of course, you go down through the various sons. Verse 10, again, Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, The Lord hath not chosen these. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all thy children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest. And behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy. I want you to note this. Because when Eliab, the Lord does see the outward appearance. Remember that? That verse always gets used. That the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh in the outward appearance, the Lord looketh in the heart. As if God doesn't see the outward appearance. But he does. He also sees the heart, as well as the outward appearance. Don't get mixed up. Don't, don't draw conclusions that are not intended. Because when David comes on the scene, his appearance is told. God is taking note of what he looks like. And he brought him in, verse 12. And he was ruddy, and withal of a beautiful countenance, and goodly to look to. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. So this is how he is chosen. Samuel took a horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brethren, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So this is the background. This is David's anointing, and you imagine then, well, well he, he takes a throne then after this, doesn't he? Immediately following, he comes to the throne, but he doesn't. He doesn't. And even though this anointing has taken place, still, still people don't see the significance of him. And so David, here in this way, again, he is typifying Jesus Christ in that he, the people fail to see what God sees. Remember Isaiah 53, verse 2, prophesying of Christ, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of the dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. I mean, that's, that was true of our Lord. He came on the scene and he was, he was rejected. He, he was not accepted. He was not perceived to be the king of Israel immediately. And so, so it was for David. Which is a lesson for us, isn't it? We, we, are, we are, many of us, easily overlooked. We're not significant characters in here. We don't have great gifts that we walk into the room and everyone stands in awe of the grandeur of our stature and our abilities and our accomplishments and achievements. We are ordinary people, folks. If you haven't realized that, wake up. (laughs) We're all very ordinary. But God uses the ordinary. And if you know the experience of being overlooked, if you know the experience of being the the second or the third or whatever, down the line, choice. Maybe you grew up in a family, it was a little like, like Jacob's family, and you, know, you, had a, you had a sibling that was like Joseph, and Joseph could do no wrong. <laughs> and you're the other, you're one of the others, and you know what that's like to be overlooked. Well, David, David was there, and this way David was not like Joseph, or Joseph was not like David and not like Christ. In a certain sense... But the Lord had his eye on him long before he knew anything of it. And of course, the important thing is the Lord is with him. Look at chapter 16, verse 18, when they're looking for someone to be a blessing to Saul amidst the evil spirit that comes upon him and his increasing anxiety and worry and paranoia. 
Verse 18 of chapter 16 says, Then answered one of the servants and said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, that is cunning and playing, and a mighty valiant man, and a man of war, and prudent in matters, and a comely person, and the Lord is with him. Ah, now there's a testimony. The Lord is with him. And that's something we should seek for in our own lives. So, this is his selection that we've considered here. But next, notice his scholarship. His scholarship. I don't know if they had scholarships back then, but they had scholarships of a kind, and and God has his own, he has his own way of educating people. The Lord was pleased to use the circumstances of David's childhood to shape him. It is amazing to me that this is so evident in many of the scriptures, in many of the people in the scripture, that God has been shaping them in their early years to make them what he wants them to be laterally. And yet we can't seem to see that about ourselves. As if our background was some mistake. That some error was made. Listen, beloved, listen. And I mean this not in some self-help way, but just in the reality as Scripture states it and teaches it. God does not intend our past to burden us, but to shape us for service. We're not to live under a constant burden of what has been and what has transpired and all the evils that have befallen us. God is shaping David. And so he learns the life of a shepherd. 1 Samuel 16 tells us of that. Again, we already read of it. He has to be fetched from looking after because he keeps the sheep. He's taking care of them. And it would appear then the rest of the brothers have been given other jobs. They had other responsibilities, other positions. David, the youngest, is sent out to, you go and take care of the sheep. But out there, out there in the hills, away from everyone, leading the sheep, David learned and refined skills that would make him the man that God intended him to be. Skills he could not acquire sitting, for example, growing up in the king's household having servants to do everything for you. Skills that he could not learn with some other favored position. I think chief among those skills was that David learned to commune with God. What do you do when the sheep during the day or you've led them to their pastures and they're grazing for the next number of hours? What do you do? Counting sheep is something you do at night when you want to go to sleep. It's not something for during the day. So what did he do? Oh, he learned to meditate and to think upon his God and to pray. Oh, how many of his psalms were were in some way birthed in those early years as he contemplated the greatness of his God. Think of his musical skills. Were they not refined out in the hills? playing to the sheep, (laughs) finding his abilities on the lyre and writing lyrics in his mind and praises to God. 
And of course, those occasions when, when there would be a threat against the sheep, then he had to again refine those skills, skills of defending the defenseless. And when others would up and run, salvage what they can, and, and just get out of there, let the bear take one of them, and just as long as you protect the others. David, David had this, this it's something in him, something in him. It made him not satisfied that the bear could come and take one and then perhaps return and take another. That David, he could, I have to, you have to nip this in the bud. It has to be addressed immediately. So he, he learns to fight the bear and the lion. Now you, don't, you don't learn that. You don't learn that sitting on a bed of ease. So he's in training. He doesn't know it, but he's in training. God is, God is shaping the one that he has to be after his own heart. The one after his own heart has certain skills he has to acquire that he learns in the furnace of affliction and in the trials of the loneliness of his youthful existence. And so you come to the great chapter, chapter 17. You know it well. It's the chapter of Goliath. You're all too well aware of David and Goliath. And his father calls him in and encourages him to go and see how his brothers fare. Because, well, some time had passed, at least, at least 40 days. I know that if you go back to, if you look at verse 16, the Philistine drew near morning and evening and presented himself 40 days. And then Jesse says unto David his son, Take now for thy brethren an ephah of this parched corn and these ten loaves and run to the camp to thy brethren and carry these ten cheeses unto the captain of their thousand and look how thy brethren fare, and take their pledge. So, go and see how they're doing, and take these things with you. Because they've been away now, over a month. They've gone a considerable period of time, and nothing's resolved. Go and see how they're doing. So off he goes. And he arrives on the scene, and the scene is before him. There's this giant of Gath, Goliath by name, who is challenging Israel, saying, bring your best, bring your best, I will fight him. And the winner of that takes all. And Goliath will go out every single day. Every day he goes out and calls them, and <laughs> there's no one to take up the challenge. So David comes, verse 26 David spake to the man that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And he told what the king had promised to the man who will take him on. And then his older brother Eliab, verse 28. There are always Eliabs. There's always Eliabs. There's always the man who, because he won't do it, thinks it can't be done. The person who imagines because it's too difficult for him, it's too difficult for everyone. And especially, especially, especially someone from your own household because, well, familiarity breeds contempt. There's no possible way that a little scrawny little kid that I grew up with could in any way be helpful in this circumstance. Eliab's eldest brother heard when he spake unto the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left 
those few sheep in the wilderness. <laughs> Aside from the fact he's obeying his father. I mean, he's obeying. He's there in obedience to his dad. Their, their mutual father. I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart. For thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. And every time I read that, I think, Eliab, you're such a fool. What battle? What battle? Are you going to fight Goliath? No, you're just like everyone else. You're standing there, arms at the same length, trembling every day when Eliab thunders across the valley of Elah. You're petrified. David comes and asks a few questions, and you come with criticism. You try to evaluate his motivation. You have no idea what's going on. I love David's response, verse 29. What have I now done? That sounds like a man who's constantly under attack from his brothers. Like no matter what he does, his brothers are criticizing him. Siblings, don't be critical. Brothers and sisters, don't be critical of one another. It's an awful thing to see brothers and sisters being critical of one another. You would imagine, just, just step back for a minute and look at the circumstances of brothers and sisters in relation to the world, and you would think, surely brothers and sisters should be cheerleaders for one another. Surely it makes sense that they would be the one, peop- the one person or the people that would be in your corner cheering you on. Go big brother, go little brother, you know, encouraging you. But oh, how experience militates against that. We have to see siblings fight and argue and bicker and pick on each other and always finding criticism, never saying any words of commendation. It's like it can't come out of their mouth. You did well, well done, great job. It's like that. It just, it won't come out. Just criticism comes out. Oh, you know, you know it. And you parents, you have to educate your kids on how to encourage, be an encouragement to one another. Not like Eliab. Oh, God, spare us Eliabs in our homes. What have I now done? Is there not a cause? I like that. They're not a cause. Here's a man you can, you can already see God, why God has condescended to him. Because he is driven with a sense of, of need around him. And he sees need. And instead of evaluating the impossibility, he just sees there's need. And I wouldn't be my first choice. But neither am I going to stand back and just watch and be a spectator as the enemy brings threats against his people. He won't do it. David is not someone who's full of self-confidence. David is simply the person who sees the need and responds to it. And the difference between David and Eliab and the rest of the armies of Israel is not an ability It's in his faith in God. That's the faith in God that drives him, propels him, pushes him, feels him compelled. There's a cause here. Someone has to do something. Can't just stand back and watch as the Philistines mock us every day and Goliath brings his threat and we're just going to stand back and watch him. 
There's a cause. Every missionary feels this cause. They do not think themselves, those who are worth their salt, do not think themselves to be the best missionaries. They don't think themselves to have all the equipment. They just feel the cause, and the cause drives them. While everyone else stays at home in their comfortable lives, maybe God dealing with them, but they refuse. They refuse even to consider what God might do with them. They respond to the cause. And there's so many needs, beloved, so many needs, all sorts of little causes. Both at home and abroad, always there are little things where you, where you have this, this, this challenge. Will I do it? Or I'll leave someone else to do it. I'll let someone else do it. Someone else can do it. Now that's not that's not the way. That's not the way. See the cause and respond to the cause. Yes, yes. This 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 is the difference between modern psychology and its inflating the egos of men and God's kingdom and how he deals with us. God does not crush us and tell us that because we're sinners, nothing can be done. He doesn't tell us that. Nor does he tell us how, how wonderfully gifted we are and we can go and the world is our oyster and do whatever you like. It's all tied into this humble, this humble attitude and frame of mind where he, he says simply that if you seek first the kingdom of God, that's the foundation. All these things will be added onto you. And if you, if you take the frame of a servant, and just this attitude of servitude and whatever, those that are low he will lift up, he will exalt. Those who try to exalt themselves he will bring down. And so David, rather than Eliab, who thought himself to be something and believed the rumors about his great stature and gifts and so on. <laughs> when he looks at Goliath, you see, see, everything for Eliab and his, his achievements were about his own personal ability. But then when he looks at Goliath, <laughs> it's like, whatever I've achieved in battle, like, there's no way I can take on this guy. But for David, none of that was about him. It was about the Lord. It's the, it's the kingdom cause that drives it. That's the issue. That's the issue. And Christians do great things when it's the cause of the kingdom that undergirds how and why they act. And so we read of David that he served, after he served his generation, he fell on sleep. David's mentality, even as a boy, was, I want to serve my generation. That's the driving thing, serving my generation. And right now, in this moment, my generation needs someone to step up and step in to this cause. And everyone had stood by for 40 days and watched it, and no one had responded to the need. It's all a matter of self-preservation. Their cause is self-preservation, not the kingdom. Ah, you see, if your cause is self-preservation, you'll never be a martyr. You'll never do anything of sacrifice. You'll never be imprisoned for the cause of Christ because your primary cause is self-preservation. David is not like this. You go to verse 41. 
of the same chapter. The Philistine came on and drew near unto David, and the man that bare the shield went before him. When the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy and of a fair countenance. This (laughs) attractive boy. The Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog that thou comest to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. He didn't see the sling, did he? (laughs) He didn't see what he ought to have been worried about. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then said David to the Philistine, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. That's what bothered him. It was the cause. The cause of the kingdom. That's what bothered him. So many individuals, you live with this individualistic mindset. Your cause is just your own. It's just you and your family. That's the only thing you're concerned about. And if that's the only thing you're concerned about, you and your family, and don't get me wrong, that's part of the cause, but if that's the only thing, you will live and not serve your generation. You won't. And so you will die as David did. And your body will see corruption, as David's did. And you will not have served your generation. Because it's just you and your own little group of concern. That's all. David was a boy who could easily say, this isn't my problem. But the cause, because he was kingdom-oriented, because he had a heart for something far beyond himself, was driven. And he saw the defiance of the enemy. Verse 46, This day will the Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee and take thine head from thee. And I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. You see, it's our hands. It's not about David. The cause is a collective cause. Oh, beloved, get it into your head. If you live independently of the church, you can't serve Christ, and you can't serve your generation. You have to bed in to the corporate body. You have to see the cause of the collective. Give yourself where you can. See the causes that exist. And they go into battle, as you well know, and how it all ends. So here is this, as we would say in Ulster Scots, weefla. <laughs> weefla. We fella. Right? Just for educate you on that. That's how I got called when I first came to know Melanie's family. And they lived a little bit out in the countryside, and her grandmother used terms that were even more, let's say, Scottish than what I would hear normally in the town. And so they would talk about a weefla. Who's the weefla? <laughs> uh, David was, was just a weefla. 
just, just, just a young lad. And before his father, he was unqualified. Before his brothers, he looked unqualified. Before Goliath, he was, <laughs> he was definitely unqualified. But he had what counts. He had the favor of God. Why did he have the favor of God? Because how he died was how he was as a boy. He served his own. He had a, a compelling, an instinct, a longing, a spirit birth desire, born in prayer and meditation, where he wanted to serve so badly his generation. And he died having fulfilled that calling. God had schooled him. And God enabled him to serve his generation, taking him into isolation in the hills around Bethlehem to look after a handful of sheep that one day he might bring him into the public eye to serve the entire nation of Israel because he understood there was a cause. When his father sent him out to tend the sheep, there was a cause. When the bear came to take the sheep, there was a cause. When his father said, go and take this and see how your brethren fare, there was a cause. There was a broader kingdom need that was driving him. And when he arrived on the scene of the battle, there was a cause. And there is a cause today, men and women. There is a cause. There is a cause. And if you, I know there's a lot of talk that the coming of the Lord draweth nigh, and it does. And there's talk about he may arrive any minute. All these things are being fulfilled. I don't know where we are on the prophetic calendar. I have no clue. But I live in such a way I trust that should he come very soon in my lifetime, I trust I'll be found occupying till he comes. That's what he said, wasn't it? Occupy till I come. I hope I'll be occupying till he comes. But should he delay, as it were, his coming? For multiple generations. I need to serve. I need to serve the younger generation. I need to do something that will, that will last beyond myself. And it may or may not, but it needs to give, to give a try. Make an attempt. Serve your generation beyond yourself. Get out of yourself and your own little causes. Look to the needs that are around you. And sometimes you don't know what to do. Maybe you're looking today and you're saying, well, I don't know what to do. How do I serve my generation? There were times David didn't know what to do. He didn't. Many times. You go to 1 Samuel 23, for example. I can't read all the verses here, but it's just one example of many. There are many examples where he does what he always does. He gets before God and he asks. He asks him, what, what, what do I do here? So here is Keilah. His men are there, and verse 4 says, David inquired of the Lord yet again. He had already inquired, verse 2. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and smite these Philistines? Verse 4, again he inquires of the Lord. He asks, when it's not explicit, you ask. And the Lord will lead you. That's, that's, that's the scholarship God gives. Serve your generation. God will teach you how to do that. Thirdly, his suffering. David suffered. He suffered greatly in his life. He was treated with disdain. We've already seen that. 
And even once he gained notoriety, again he's afflicted. Once Saul sees how people are responding to him, so now the people see his gifting, now they're rallying around him, now Saul is the problem. Saul doesn't like what he sees. He's turned into the Eliab. He is the one now that doesn't like what he sees and wants to squash the young man. Once God begins to bless the people, it's often that you see this. You see this kind of disdain. No one wants to see someone else being blessed unless they are being blessed. And as Saul was losing favor with God and David was gaining favor with God, that envy arose in his heart. Oh, go back to chapter 18, 1 Samuel. Just so you see some of this. It's so sad. It's so sad. Never be this person, ever. Don't be Saul. 1 Samuel 18, verse 9. Saul eyed David from that day and forward. And it came to pass on the morrow that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied in the midst of the house, and David played with his hand as at other times. And there was a javelin in Saul's hand. And Saul cast the javelin, for he said, I will smite David, even to the wall with it. And David avoided out of his presence twice. And Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with him, and was departed from Saul. Chapter 19, verse 1, Saul spake to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. Ah, see, it's just like the Lord Jesus. If he, was, if he just stayed quiet, just to stay there, stay in obscurity. But when our Lord gained fame and people started following him, then the religious elite of the day and the leaders of the day began to have a problem with him. So, he has this prospect of becoming king. It's not yet come. And you go right to chapter 26. Just to note something here. Verse 9 through 11. He, he had the opportunity to take Saul and, and gain his position. God has anointed him. Surely he should seize upon any, every opportunity. And you read verses 9 through The following verses, you see what he says in verse 10, David said, Furthermore, as the Lord liveth, the Lord shall smite him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall descend into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch forth mine hand against the Lord's anointed. So he refuses to take the opportunity to deal with Saul himself. But you come to chapter 27, verse 1. Here you see he's just a man. He's just a man. David said in his heart, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. Think of what that means. If you perish by the hand of Saul, you don't become king. But you were anointed to be king. And others have prophesied over you that you will be king. Samuel could see it. Others along the way, even Jonathan could see it. The one who was heir to the throne under Saul, he could see that it wasn't him. It was, it was David. And amidst all of that, still he, his, his heart faints. His, his face is weak. He is, he is struggling here. He's, he's just a man. And you have your times of struggle. You do. You have your times where you begin to disbelieve and you're, you're just like David. And you begin to look at all the possible negative outcomes and you build bridges to places that don't exist and never will. And let me just point something out. When you do that, when you, when you think of every eventuality, and many of it, especially if it's negative, when you think of every eventuality, but especially the negative, the things that are militating against the promises of God, remember Philippians 4. 
whatsoever things are true, think on these things. You have no business thinking about things that aren't true and imagining and bringing to reality within your own consciousness the things that aren't going to come to pass and worrying about them. Oh, how much energy is wasted. Concerned about what never will happen. God has said, God has said to David, you will reign. And he's, well, he's just like the rest of us. And you read on, he has his other difficulties and tragedies. One of the key ones is at Ziklag, when he's been given the city of Ziklag by the Philistines, and he loses the women and the children there. And all his men, the 600 men, are ready to stone him to death. And he gets before the Lord again. He encourages himself in the Lord. And he again asks, should I pursue this host? And the Lord tells him, pursue, and thou shalt recover all. Oh, there's so many pictures of the gospel. I wish I could just stop on them all, but I can't. I can't. It brings us then to his sin. We need to quickly deal with his sin. When you come to 2 Samuel 11, you have the sad the sad account of his sin. We sang Psalm 51 for this reason. David penned that psalm in the guilt of his transgression. And here you have the downfall. Christians, some of you have been living for God for years. Don't get complacent. This is David getting complacent. Chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, verse 1. It came to pass after the year was expired, at the time when kings go forth to battle, that David sent Joab. No, it's the time when kings go forth to battle, David. You're meant to be there. And his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. Underline it. He shouldn't be there. And it came to pass on an even. Let me just point out. He shouldn't be there. Where should he be? He should be serving his own generation. Right? That's what he should be doing. He should be busy for the Lord. And he's not. So in his idleness, the devil makes inroads, temptation arises. Verse 2, it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed. Ah, what, what happened? What was it? Is it Psalm? What's Psalm? Psalm 63? Early will I seek thee? <laughs> it's not happening now. It's not happening. He's waking up in the evening, lying in all day, lying in bed, walked upon the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. And David sent and inquired after the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And there you know all the tragedy of it. He sends for her. She falls pregnant. David's like, Oh no, what do I do? I know what I do. I will send for Uriah. Bring him back from battle. He'll come back to Jerusalem. He'll go to his home. He will indulge in fleshly pleasures. And when the child comes along, everyone will imagine it's Uriah's. So he sends for Uriah. Uriah comes back, but Uriah won't go home because he's an honorable man. He won't indulge himself in fleshly pleasures when all of his other men are out there facing the battle. And he can't bring himself to it. He cannot bring himself to it. He's not like David, who's lying at home when everyone out fighting and putting their lives at risk. Uriah thinks, I can't do this. I can't go home and be with my wife when all the other men are risking their lives and they're not with their wives. So David's in a pickle. This child's going to be born. And questions are going to be asked. 
So, so he concocts a plan. I e- even tried to get Uriah drunk to send him home. He thought, if I get him drunk, then he'll go home. He'll lose his wits and go home. But he didn't. So he sends him out to the battle with his own death warrant in his hand. And the letter is opened and it says, Put Uriah to the foremost part of the battle. Then withdraw. Leave him exposed. And sure enough, Uriah is killed in battle. Adultery, lies, murder. This is where David gets to. A month's pass. No one knows about it. But Nathan knows, the prophet. And he has to go and speak to David. He's, he's scared. It's good, even if you're scared to obey anyway, right? If you're ever scared, just obey anyway. In trembling. That's what Nathan did. Better that than to pretend to be courageous and not obey. So Nathan goes in fear and trembling and he can see him like, how do do I communicate this message? So he kind of puts a parable, a story before him. You know, David, there was a man and he portrays this poor man who had nothing and he just had one little sheep and the rich man comes and takes it and off and so on and so forth and anyway. And David is mad. I mean, who would do this? What kind of man would abuse the the weak and the poverty-stricken like this? This this isn't honorable. Who would do this? And Nathan goes, you. You've done it, David. Thou art the man. And David has a choice in that moment. Off with the prophet's head. Fall down in repentance. And this is where you see him as the man after God's own heart. He is broken because he has grieved the living God. It doesn't matter whether anyone finds out about this or what, to what extent it is known. What matters is he needs to repent before God. And you read Psalm 51 in your own time. Oh, Christian, if you feel the failure of your life, Get before God with Psalm 51 and pray and weep over it until you know the comfort of forgiveness. Because that's what David believes, that his God is even able to forgive these great sins of his. Which brings us finally to his son. As heir to the throne, God was pleased to to raise up Solomon, wisest man of all. And he is born to Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. David has a number of wives. You're not expecting the, the one who will follow David at the throne or on the throne to be from Bathsheba. But... Such are the ways of the Lord. 
that he takes a big mess and he pours in his grace in such a way that we're amazed. Yes, amazed. That's why we sing it. Amazing grace. It's amazing. I wouldn't, I would not have chosen Bathsheba. The whole sordid circumstances of it. No way. But the Lord does. Solomon comes from her. God's favor is upon him. So that we can see, yes, where sin abounds. Grace does much more abound. But the real story of David's son is not in Solomon. If you go to 2 Samuel 7, and time is gone, so I'll just deal with this and then close. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13. As David's coming to the end, and what's the prospect? Verse 13, He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, thine house shall be, And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. This is what is promised to David. But it is not to be fulfilled in Solomon. It's to be filled, fulfilled in Christ. Christ is the one who will take the throne of David and occupy it forever. Christ is the one who came and gave us evidence. Yes, he gave evidence that he has assumed that throne by pouring out the Spirit like never before on the day of Pentecost. And there Christ is ever, even now at the right hand of the Father reigning in the power of an endless life commanding blessings upon his people and extending his kingdom to the ends of the earth against all the efforts of wicked men and policies and laws and kings and presidents and everything they're trying to do. He just he sits in the heavens. Looked at the passage of Brother John's going to deal with Psalm 2. He sits in the heavens and laughs as he reigns over it. There he sends his spirit and that will drive the kingdom forward. What a life well lived. A sinner, a great sinner in some regards, but a man, what a man. One of the greatest songwriters, soldiers, and sovereigns ever to live. And a secret, his priority was to have a heart like the Lord's. To know God in his innermost being. To have devotion that was predominant and priority in his life. So if you want to get to the heart of this man, how to understand one of the greatest men that ever lived and the greatest lives ever to live, you, you go to the Psalms and you see his heart. Oh, show, show us your heart, David. Psalm 42, verse 1, As the heart of the deer panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. Do you do that? You want a life of significance? You want it to mean something? You want to serve your generation? You have to have a thirst for God can't do it without it. can't. A thirst for God. A thirst. Yes. Yes, there has to be a thirst. It's like, give me more. Give me more. I don't just want church attendance. I want more of God. 
I don't want just prayer meetings. I want more of God in those prayer meetings. I don't want just more Bible. I want God in His Word. As the deer needs the water brooks to survive, so our souls are to pant after God. That's David. Psalm 84 verse 2, My soul longeth, yet even fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. See, you don't care about church. Some of you. Some of you don't care. You haven't learned to care. Now, we've had a little insight. We had a little period of the cave of Adullam. Right? Like David had. The cave of Adullam. And in the cave of Adullam, he had one thing. One thing have I desired. One thing have I desired from the Lord that I will seek after. That I might dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Just get me back there. I want to be where God is known. And, you know, Christians today, there's like, ah, I can't be bothered today. I'm not bothered going to the house of God. I can't be bothered. I can't be bothered. You know, just, just the, the careless way we treat the house of God. You can't be. You can't live a life of significance. You can't live your life well if that's how you think. Psalm 55, evening and morning and at noon will I pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. Ah, Daniel, where did you learn to pray three times a day? Did you make it up? No, I didn't. I looked at the man who had a heart that was so filled with desires for God. And he said he prayed three times a day. Oh, I could go on. This is a life well lived. I mean, David, David. You know, the modern scholars, they like to say, David didn't really exist. The problem is, archaeology has only proven it over and over again. This man lived. And oh, how he lived. Oh, how he lived. Yes, and he points to Christ, the ultimate king who had no blemish, praise God. But he shows also the abundance of grace. And I say to you, beloved, yes, there's a part in which we look at David's life and we say, Lord, help me, help me, help me. If he was a man after God's own heart and he did these things and it pleased you, help me, help me. Make sure when you come to the end, make sure when you come to the end, you know you have served your own generation. Because if you don't do that, what have you got at the end? But a retirement and a house, maybe a few people that actually care about you, maybe. But have you really served your generation? May God help us. Let's pray. Life well lived. You want to get to the end, Christian, and receive what the woman received from Christ. In his words when he said, She hath done what she could. Are you doing what you can? Is his kingdom your priority? Is his cause your cause? Maybe it's time for Reflection. Maybe you've been drifting. Maybe you've gotten comfortable. Today I find you a little like David. Others are engaging in the battle, but you're lying in. You're, you're sleeping when you should be laboring. 
May today be a day of renewal. A new beginning. Lord, we pray for grace. We, we're such faltering people. And we are so much like David in that way. Our failures, our doubts and fears, our imagining the worst and not considering the goodness and mercy of the Lord as we should. Help us to meditate on thy promises. Help us to live in light of thy word. Help us to take each day at a time and see the cause that is ever before us. Our energies are limited. Our powers are greatly restricted. Our influence is very diminished in these days. But may thy church arise with a fresh anointing of the Spirit. And may those without Christ this morning realize they will never ever live a life of meaning until they first begin with Christ. So hear prayer. Go before us through this afternoon. Rejoice in all thy mercies. Keep us in thy love and fear. As we anticipate gathering again this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.